Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. The section that we're going over here today is Nitzavim, which the Torah section is covering Deuteronomy 29 and 30. And uh, we also went over the Haftarah section there in Isaiah 61, basically 62, and a little bit of 63, and picked up this passage here in John chapter 12. Now, I'm going to wonder, well, what are all these things have to do with each other? Well, goes back to this basic message that you get in this last part of the last discourse that Moshe is providing. And you saw that in the last appeal there in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So, between life and death, choose life. So, that's um, one of the things that you have to consider in that is do you really know what is threatening your life? We may think, oh, it's a pretty easy thing. You know, if you're in a physical situation and something is physically threatening your life, that should be easy to see, right? If you're standing in the road and there is a truck coming at you, that's an easy option. I'd hope. They'd say, well, do I stay here, choose death, or do I get out of the way of the truck and choose life? Say, okay, that's a, it's a pretty interesting option. But the question comes in, and it's presented through these various instructions that we've had in both this section and the one that we had before in the section Kitavo, which covered the previous couple of chapters, is that, well, do you really see the truck coming at you? Do you really see that you are standing in the middle of the street and the truck is headed right toward you? And then you get down to what is talked about in this section here today about circumcising your hearts. Now, in the conversations that we've had before about the instructions related to circumcision, you'll see that as the Apostle Paul gets at, circumcision is something that happens internally, what is happening in your desires, what is happening inside of you before there is any surgical procedure that happens to it. So, just like what the Apostle Paul was warning the, who he was writing to, if you are flipping the situation around and you're getting the surgery before there has been anything happening inside of you, it is very similar to a situation that we were kind of hinting at earlier in the time of prayer is that you know, if you, are, you get a procedure done but you've not addressed any of the underlying health practices or health behaviors involved, what may happen again? The same thing. The same thing may happen again. But just like in your physical body, so like in your life and what is guided by the Spirit, that what is inside of you that blows through you like wind into the sails of a ship, to move you forward in a given direction. So too will happen in your life. But 
it may come that just like what people encounter with surgery, sometimes even with cosmetic surgery, that there comes to be a point where you have cut away too much. There's nothing left to cut anymore. You, re you reach that situation where the apostle Yaakov, John, talks about that, about sins that lead to death. They basically take you down a road too far. Too far, where you may not even notice anymore the trucks, those metaphorical, metaphorical trucks bearing down upon you anymore. So that's one of the warnings that we have in these blessings and curses here today. We may think that they're anachronistic, they're things that we might project from the modern time back into the past, or they're archaisms, meaning things that are long past and have no relevance to things today. But really, they are talking about timeless things that happen in life. And that goes into the section where it talks about the Torah is not too difficult. It's within your heart and in your mouth. Because what does that in your heart and in your mouth kind of remind you about and give you a hint it's something that we say every shabbat service has to do with hearing shema israel that goes on and it talks about the verses six through nine that you talk about them when you walk by the way when you get up and you lie down which means what they're always on your mouth and if they're always on your mouth they're in your ears of the recipients. They're in your heart. They're coming out of your heart. They're always on your mind. You're always thinking about them. Is, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're like me. I have to think really hard before words come out of my mouth. And sometimes I think too hard and I, I speak very staccatically. And, and um, it gets to be a bit annoying because there are long pauses in between my words because I'm actually thinking before I speak. So... Uh, yes, <laughs> and uh, sometimes that could be a, a challenge, and sometimes that's a, a good thing to have a filter on before you speak. But the things that are within your heart are what comes out, like what Yeshua said there in Mark chapter 7. Out of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Yes, so it's, it's not... Like what we're talking about with circumcision, it's not what goes in, but it's what comes out. As we've talked about before, and you know, Larry was uh, feeling a little ill today, but Larry has a programming background, and he's always apt to say a very spiritual principle is something that comes from programming. Garbage in, garbage out. If you don't give good information, or even if you have good information, if you don't treat it treat it with respect and treat it properly, you will get a garbage result. Kind of similar to folk that you may know that have read the Bible maybe many times, don't believe a word of it. They may be experts in quoting it and this and that has no effect on the life. They may think just the opposite. That be experts in the word, but have no belief in the one that it proceeds from. 
But one, one of the things that we see that is a lesson from this particular section talking about that the Torah is not too difficult, it's not too far off, it's within your hearts and with on your, on your lips. That is a part of what the new covenant prophecy is all about. We quote it a lot on a lot of occasions. Jeremiah chapter 31 and its second witness there in Ezekiel chapter 36. Those things together you see talked about in the New Testament and quoted, especially the Jeremiah 31 portion, quoted several times in the letter of Hebrews again and again and again. A very important section because that is speaking of what the transformation is within us. It comes within us and then goes out from us. And together with that is the section in there where uh, we'll, we'll be actually talking about that quite a bit today as our kind of a bridge section there, um, where the uh, mentions there in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that's about the hidden things of the Lord and being revealed. But one of the things we'll take a look at is that you know hidden sins eventually will be revealed and so one of the things that we strive to live for is to live in modern parlance, to live, to be transparent, to be real, to have nothing to hide. And if you want to see more of that, uh, go back to the uh, discussions that we did in, Ger- in Genesis chapter 3 about the tree and the whole thing of the tree and whether you're wearing clothes, not wearing clothes, are you ashamed with wearing clothes? Are you not ashamed while wearing clothes with those first couple? That's a very important spiritual lesson because it goes all the way down to the end of time where it's like where the apostle Yaakov says that the law is like a mirror and you look at yourself in the mirror. Well, what do you see when you look into the mirror, when you look at yourself through God's laws. What do you see? Or do you see what is described um, that, um, in Romans chapter 7, where Paul is talking about that experience? When you compare yourself against the instructions of God, do you conclude that what wretched man I am, who can save me from this body of death, meaning I stand condemned? I stack myself up against the law of God, and I am toast. Or do you say, who can save me from this body of death? Change me so I'm not, you know, a pop toaster strudel. It gets overbaked. But no, I become something new, which is what Romans chapter 8 is all about living something new, which is part and parcel about what the new covenant is, that you get the change from the inside, that circumcision of the heart, cutting off the things from your internal desires that are still in, quote, Egypt, unquote, your house of bondage where the Lord has delivered you from. So when you see that in the section that we're going through here in, in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, this is a part of the third address. We just went through the second address that Moshe is having to that second generation that's getting ready to go into the land. The second address, most of that from chapter 6 all the way through 26, is 
really can be described as an elaboration on the Ten Commandments and packaging them together, just, you know, the first commandment, the second commandment, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth, all together in what seems like a grab bag of instructions are really elucidations, expansions, explanations of what the Ten Commandments are really all about. And we'll We'll see that in the section that we're going to really focus on here today, which is Deuteronomy 29.29, which, as a recap of that, you know, the secret things, the satar, belong to the Lord, but the things revealed, or the galah, belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So, simple verse, and it seems like, well, that's just kind of seems like a strange thing to be dropped in there. And that's indeed what, there's been some <laughs> um, various approaches taken to this. And you, know, you go through commentaries, both modern and ancient, and you will see all kinds of takes on this particular verse. Um, and some, uh, some take it from this to mean that there's mysteries of God that need to be uncovered, but you just need to, uncover them, that they need to be explored. And so some will take this verse, compare it with one in Daniel that talks about the things being revealed, that's the secrets being uncovered. And they put those together and say, okay, this is a basically a um, marching orders to go do deep dives into prophecies and start explaining the mysteries and... Now, if they take that farther, it goes into what's become colloquially called, you know, newspaper eschatology, which means that, oh, I see something in a prophecy, I see a headline, hey, that looks similar, and that's what the word was actually talking about at the time of Moshe, or the time of Daniel, or the time of Yeshua, or any of the other uh, prophets, apostles, etc. So, one particular take is uh, from the Pullman Bible commentary, which tends to be more of a conservative approach to, to the word, doesn't get too crazy. But this is quite common to that idea that this is something that is an instruction or perhaps a um, permission to go looking for mysteries to unpack. And it says, uh, this verse can stand alone because of its differentiation between what God had disclosed and what he had kept hidden. However, in context, these words address the puzzlement that would come when Israel found itself captive in a strange land. How could God's severe discipline be brought into line with his promise of future blessings and his oaths to the patriarchs? This was not a question that Yahweh would was choosing to answer for the present, such matters would remain a secret. All Israel needed to know at the moment was that the terms of the covenant, the things revealed, belonged to them and their children. God was urging them to follow all the words of the law. Okay, if you take a look at that, there's a lot of good points in there. You know, for, for example, that aspect that's about the context, that this may apply to the questioning that would come when Israel would be in captivity. And when you go into the prophetic writings, you know, you go into the Jeremiah's, you go into the Ezekiel's, you go into the Isaiah's, you'll see a lot of these questioning 
why is this happening? Especially lamentations, you know, attributed to the prophet Yemeriahu, uh, Jeremiah. Uh, yes, Alex. There's a lot of things we don't know. And uh, early on reading Deuteronomy today, their sandals didn't wear out when they were in the wilderness. I mean, were they in some kind of surreal state? Maybe. A lot of things I can't control that come my way that I need. A lot of things you just don't know. Mm. Lots of mysteries. Lots of mysteries. And, yes. And it's, that's the and way it's we, going we, to be. We, we saw that earlier when we were talking about the, um, where the, the fiery serpents came into the camp. And we talked about how the language there is really, of the Hebrew, is not so much that God sent them in, that he basically just lifted the protection, and they just came in. And you see hints of that with the instructions of going in to conquer the land. Because one of the things that's said is, well, you won't take it over all at once. Because if the people were driven out all at once, what would happen? Wild animals would come in. And then you'd be fighting the wild animals in addition to the peoples that were there. So you see that there is this continual form of protection that is going on, keeping basically the, the, the forces, the powers out there at bay. And you see hints of that even in the prophet Daniel when you, you get a little peek behind the, the curtain, so to speak, of what is going on with the cosmic battle out there. And you see this enigmatic figure called the Prince of Persia. And you see that you know, Mikhail and are fighting against these particular powers. And it's mentioned just in passing. As, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I was late. I was held up here. I got a little cosmic battle going on here. So some things like that are happening behind the curtain that we don't see. But and what we have revealed to us is the mysteries that are for us to actually get something from. Yes, uh, Alex. Uh, again, back to that uh, wilderness thing. I mean, what we're really here for is, um, and we're grateful for, is a healthy life with abundant fruits, the children. You know, none of that was going on in the wilderness. <laughs> it was just like, what was going on there? I don't know. Their sandals weren't even wearing out. They didn't have vineyards. I've eaten manna. Just basically quail? survival food. Yes, yeah, survival food. Yes, they were opening their rations, and they were getting their daily bread, and that was enough to sustain them. But one of the lessons that you saw that they had to learn several times was, hey, your daily bread that you're getting, that really is enough. You know, you're looking for quail, you're looking for other things, you're looking for the, the leeks, the onions, that, all the wonderful, quote, things we had in Egypt, unquote. Um, yeah, right, that they had those living, you know, as servants. But no, it wasn't actually what you actually needed to make it through this wilderness experience. And as we talk about in Passover time, this experience of moving from Egypt to the land is something that happens to all of us, where we come out of our house of bondage, so to speak, our old way of life, or as Paul puts it, the old man, and we go to the new man, or the new person, which is the land, 
or as Hebrews puts it there in chapter 3, rest, entering his rest. So each of us makes that move that goes through that. Well, what is in between Mitzrayim, the house of bondage, Egypt, and the land? The Bimidbar, the wilderness is in between. And what is in the wilderness? The mountain is in the wilderness. No water, no food. Yeah, no shelter. But what's provided? You know, a canopy, cloud, a nightlight, a heater. Yes. Yes, challenges, etc. So one of those things that happens between bondage and freedom is meeting God, but then also encountering these various challenges and realizing who is actually sustaining you through this. I mean, problems are a lot easier when you start peeling back all of the variables, right? If you encounter problems and you've got all kinds of possible reasons for your problems, well, it's very hard to figure out how you tackle them. But if you will them back to the ones, hey, these are like likely issues here, what are you then able to do? Address them. You know where the problem is coming from. Well, that's a lot of what the wilderness was. It was stripping everything back so that they could see, well, if you choose life, that's a pretty easy choice. The one where the, the cloud, the pillar of fire, the bread from heaven, that's the choosing life part. The snakes, the hunger, the thirst, that's the choosing death part. It was a pretty easy choice there, made pretty stark. When you start getting into the land and then life gets, quote, complicated, then you have all kinds of possible reasons for why you are the way you are. But that's one of the things we've talked about in going through James chapter 1. James chapter 1, you know, it talks about consider it pure joy if you face trials of many kinds. And then it goes on to talk about if any of you lacks wisdom to ask. And in the context of those two things, you see that a part of the seeking wisdom is in seeking why these things are happening to you. Because why? The perseverance builds you up to be mature, complete, not lacking anything. So you come out the other side of the trials as mature and complete. You come out the other side, the second generation of Israel, so to speak. You may have gone in, the ones that, the first generation that came out, that's constantly locking horns with the creator of heaven and earth. But you go into the land as trusting the one who brought you through. You're not tossed back and forth like a ship on the waves of the sea, like the Apostle Yaakov talks about there. You know where your true trust comes from. And you know what you can truly depend upon when you, what? Peel back all of your issues to start taking a look at, you know, things just don't happen to me. I'm, not, I'm just completely helpless. I'm just flopping around through life from one disaster to the next. 
not have any clue why these things just keep happening to me over and over again. Or we seek wisdom. Why do these things keep happening to me again and again and again? So another possibility, and this is a, a very ancient one of this particular verse there in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it takes the view that one of the, what's being talked about here are hidden sins. And the hidden sins are the things that the Lord would deal with. But what is revealed, the sins that are revealed, the congregation has to deal with. You can't just sweep them under the rug. And here's a comment from uh, Rabbi Shlomo uh, Yitzhaki, or otherwise known as Rashi, and lived in the kind of the, I guess you'd call it the mid, mid to mid um, 11th century, 12th century. And he says, concealed acts concern the Lord our God, quoting that part of it. So you might then ask, well, what can we do? You punish the many for the intentions of the individual. For if there is some man or woman whose heart is even now turning away from the Lord, quoting from Deuteronomy 29.18, the result is, quote, the plagues and diseases that the Lord has inflicted upon that land, unquote, from Deuteronomy 29.22. But no one can know the hidden thoughts of his neighbor. And God replies in our verse, I will not punish you for concealed acts. They concern the Lord and he will punish the individual for them. But with overt acts, it is for us and our children to remove the evil from our midst. If we do not sanction them, uh, if we do not sanction them, then the public is punished. Note that the words, quote, for us and our children have dots over the letters, which is, you know, if you were to peel back the hood and take a look at the Hebrew underneath it, the uh, current Masoretic text has... The, the equivalent of bold face and underlining in Hebrew, which is basically um, in the ancient times, before they put the, um, the vowel points on it, they actually just had dots, dot, 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 over every letter. And you'll see it represented here as uh, a quotation from the Mesoretic text, um, where they just have dot, 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 dot. And it, those show up very rarely. And that just means that this is, hey, Pay attention to this phrase that's going there. So Rashi continues, this is to provide the further interpretation. The meaning of those words is limited. Even overt acts did not provoke punishment on the wider public until after they crossed the Yarden. Once they accepted the oath of Mount Gerizim and Ebal, Mount Ebal, and became responsible for each other's behavior. So what is this talking about? Uh, this is a reflection of the exiles happened after they entered the land. But as we just talked about, you'll read in Exodus, you'll read in Numbers, you read in Deuteronomy with the recap of what happened. Yeah, there were judgments that happened. And yes, when we were going through Numbers and we saw the senses at the beginning <laughs> where, where they were when they left Mitzrayim, and then when they were getting ready to enter the land, there were some significant uh, population differences for some certain tribes to happen, significant reductions. So when you're seeing then the discussions of the judgments that came along, the various plagues, judgments that came along for, you know, uh, Dotan, and you had his um, Korah, his rebellion, and all the people that went down with them. Yes, uh, Tammy. Yeah, another thing that kind of comes to mind with this about the, um, you know, the 
where it says here, but with overt acts, it is for us and our children to remove the evil. But there are some times where you see the evidence of an evil act and you have no idea who did it. Hence, you have the stories in the Torah about if you stumble upon a person's a, a corpse. And, That's a good point, yes. And, you know, the, the people of the nearest town had to basically make atonement for that death, basically saying, we have no way to know how this person died, but if they were murdered, you know, we have no way of figuring it out, but we're going to make atonement for it so that this blood will not be on our children. Um, Just the, the acknowledgement that, that then, right? something they terrible had happened. The they acknowledged the horrible act in some way, even though they couldn't maybe, you know, bring justice in this life. So, and the other thing that kind of popped up as you were talking a little bit, and you mentioned it with Cora, maybe another extreme example of this kind of thing of, you know, maybe hidden scenes becoming public is the story in the book of Acts with Ananias yes. and Sapphira. Yes, that's another one. And so um, I was actually listening to a podcast where they were talking about that because that's a very jarring event that happened because they were, they thought they were going to get away with something, but the Holy spirit had revealed to Peter what was going on and enacted a very blunt judgment upon that situation. So even in the new Testament times, we think of that, Oh, you know, Korah and all that, that's old Testament. But even in the new Testament, there were circumstances where God just took care of it himself. So that's something to think about too. Yeah. And, you know, for the uh, correction and the <laughs> realignment of the entire community, you see a similar thing. Um, uh, we'll see that as we get into the next part of the discussion, which is a little bit of a rewind, that the Apostle Paul actually addressed this in two of his letters. So one of the, y'all, yes. Uh, Ben and I, right? Great, thank you. Is that uh, in, in Matthew about when uh, sins are revealed? Let's see, it is uh, Matthew 18. Um, woe unto you because of the offenses, for must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offenses cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast in everlasting fire it seems like this is addressing the body of christ is that basically because we're the hands and the feet and if there's a sin that comes forth it's like a spiritual gangrene that we have to address it and then it goes through it continues about how to address it you address the yes. person you know so if there is something that comes to attention the, Correct. the approach of how yeah. to address it yeah. it's really good i really like that particular one because i've heard people talk so literally in the past about it they haven't brought up the body of Christ and the hands and the feet part, and that basically were to go to them, you know, of course, in love and bring the truth to them. And if they don't receive it, then bring another person. If they don't receive it, then bring them for the assembly. And if they don't receive it, well, then you excommunicate them. Mm. So that, from what I understand, that yeah, seems to that's, be that's where you start getting to these things that are um, definitely overt, and uh, you have to actually start dealing with them. And we'll be get into just a little bit of that as we move forward a bit. But that that's a great observation because that's like, okay, you've got this now surfaced. Now what do you deal with it? And uh, Rashi and some others, when they go back and they, they look, well, this looks very similar to a discussion that happened in the previous Torah section, Kitavo, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, where it lists like these, um, these 12 
deadly sins, secret sins, you might say, that are said to happen, and they will bring the curse. Cursed be the one, cursed be the one, cursed be the one. And in this list here in Deuteronomy 27, verses 15 through 26, talks about the one curses the one and makes an idol in secret. Well, there you go. When we're talking about the recap of the Ten Commandments, that's the second commandment. Curses the one who dishonors father and mother. Okay, that's the fifth commandment. Curses the one who moves his neighbor's boundaries. We, we hit on that a lot in our last section. That's the eighth commandment there about theft. And even you might argue it is also perhaps the tenth commandment about coveting. You are coveting your neighbor's property, your neighbor's territory. And uh, curses the one who misleads a blind person. Now, you might say that the sixth commandment, you know, acting against the health, you're acting against your brother, you might also include that into the eighth commandment as well as theft, because you're thinking, well, you could just do it maliciously to, as they say, put a, um, a stumbling block in front of a blind person. You might just do that for, to be a, um, uh, a so-and-so just because you want to get a, quote, laugh, unquote. Or you could be doing it to deceive, to defraud. I mean, one of the biggest problems we have in society today is what they call elder fraud, where people are coming in to, quote, help, and they're just helping themselves to the, um, their person that they're caring for, their property, their stuff, and going to various levels of just taking all their stuff out of them, either because they're not aware of it going on, or they just trust the person that the person is actually helping them when, when actually they are preying on them. And it uh, goes on, uh, curses the one who distorts justice for the non-Israeli or the foreigner. You could say that's also a part of the theft or the murder hate kind of combination of both of those that hatred that comes in for other people um curses the one and the ones uh six through nine kind of are kind of lumped into into the same kind of um bucket here curses the one who engages in deviancy with his stepmother the one who gets perverted with an animal seduces his sister or stepsister knows his mother-in-law the wrong way. And those generally go under the seventh commandment. Now, we were talking about earlier about um, the one who, uh, who misleads a blind person as being a key problem with a corollary today of elder fraud. And, well, today, sadly, when numbers six through nine, if you look at the statistics today, you would think, oh, this is a problem of ancient times. Actually, sadly, this has become a problem today. And in fact, yes, ask a genealogist about how much a uh, uh, little bit too close of relations are happening inside of families are going on. That is a, a significant problem. And we're seeing more and more people are justifying it, rationalizing it, even coming up with all kinds of even psychological excuses for why this number six through nine is not a, not a problem uh yes alex yeah i mean if you don't read the backstory and a lot of that stuff it's it's almost you know with the sister stepsister 
it's it's like oh man they're just they're just twisted people but the tribal people in that area actually north uh where moses was from <laughs> it was not it was not uncommon yeah and uh so it was that that's you read about the ancient egypt Yahweh was trying yeah, to clean it was, up was not uncommon at all and that's was that's, uh, uh one of the problems with the herodians they were doing it and yeah that's what got john ba- john the baptist it's, uh, it's, a, it's generally wow. a problem with royalty in yeah, general it, it kept rearing <laughs> its ugly head and um that was james's big beef that's why these guys were going so extreme uh the zealots at that time post uh, maccabees uh the essenes living in caves no meat they were so upset that the herodians were <laughs> their rulers um and in charge of the people that they were putting in the temple, appointing the priests, and they're bad people as far as the law went. Yeah. So uh, now, it, yeah, that, that really brought some extremism up. Yeah, you, you bring up a very interesting point, the reaction of um, the Essenes, whether they're connected to the people who write the Dead Sea Scrolls or not, still up for debate, but uh, it's a good corollary to say the Essenes, that particular sect, were upset with what was going on. And when you read um, the Holiness Code sections of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can see why. And that's also what's come up in the scholarship in the past 20 years, talking about this connection of what you see in the Dead Sea Scrolls with what Paul rails about when he talks about works of law. It's often translated works of the law, but it is ergon namu, as it is in Greek. Corollary to that is maase hatara, or works of the law. And where do you find that? In the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Holiness Code, in there. And basically what you see, maase hatara, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, are basically saying, hey, this is what it means to be a member in good standing in our community. Okay, if you do this, you are a member of good standing. And a number of those, keeping Shabbat was one, circumcision was one of those, but they had a whole long list of other stuff that was included in the holiness code. But if you did not do that, then you were out. You were a persona non grata. You were kicked out. You, as they say, cut off from the community, to put that in the Torah language. So... One of the things that you see is potentially Apostle Paul railing at, and you see the same thing, Yeshua addressed this with the various approaches that different sects had at the time. There were different, you might know about the different houses among the Pharisees, the house of Shammai, the house of Hillel, and they battled each other. You can see shadows of that recorded hundreds of years later in the Mishnah and the Talmud how they were at each other's throats over things. But long story short is that there was rules for what meant you're in and rules for what you're out. So thus, one of the the things that Paul was addressing was you are saying that the kingdom of God has these, quote, in rules here of where you go in. But... If a person is cleaned, that is step one. And as it goes in, uh, you see, talked about there with like an Acts uh, 15 and then an Acts 21 and 22, 
where it's talking about the Jerusalem Council and then after the Jerusalem Council. What you see going on there is that, yes, there is a low bar, a open reception for people from the nations. But when they come in, what do they do? They hear every Shabbat, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that is what they build up their in-list, out-list from. Not your in-list and your out-list sect group of people, but what is actually in the words of God in this. So it's very interesting that when you take this back and you look at the, what, what is allowed, what is not allowed, versus Israel and the nations where they went into, went into Canaan, how they had their practices, they're coming out of Mitzrayim, Egypt, with their practices. And with some of those things, you could say, well, um, what was the difference? You might, might say, remember, that's going way back, and you'll see Bible skeptics will bring this up all the time. Well, who was Cain's wife? As I said, that Cain had, had children, married and had children. Well, who was Cain's wife? Where did she come from? Well, if you start out with there being the accurate presentation of the word of God, that God created them male and female, then you see in chapter 2 that he created Adam from the dusty earth, breathed life into him, created Chava, Eve, from his side, and formed her. She became a living person, described that she is the mother of all mankind. Then where did Cain's wife come from? Eve. Came from Eve. East of Eden, yes. Well, after they left the garden, yes. Things after the in dying they will die. After that started with the choice, choose life, choose death. They, choose, they chose the in dying you will die part and thus started the downhill slide. So where did Cain's wife come from? A sister or a niece. At that time, when you're talking about a perfect situation, as we've discovered today, that God has created us with computer-like, even better than computer-like, code in our genetics that passes from one generation to the next. We, we see that going on. And today, for there to be relations between people within a family, that's an extremely bad idea because of a problem that happens with mistakes or mutations that happen that get collected if the Gene pool is too small, meaning inside your family. We see that today. I mean, and it didn't take a rocket scientist or a geneticist in ancient times to say, ah, that's a bad thing. You got uh, everybody is just mingling within themselves there and their children are coming out with problems. Came to be seen as an issue. But when the genetics were pure at the beginning, perfect copies. Not so many accumulated mistakes. Now, today, huge problem because we have gone downhill from where things have started. There are lots of problems that accumulated 
and you see them in small populations. So one reason why you get these things in here, why it's different from Abraham's time, his half-sister, or Cain's time, likely a sister, maybe a niece, is that we're just not in Eden anymore. And that became evident pretty quickly to people that we're not in Eden anymore. Things work differently. Uh, Rose, I'm before I... Cannot we yes. uh, marry second cousins today? Yeah, well, I mean, but even, that, even that, that is starting to get to be problematic. Really? Yes. It, um, our genome is going downhill at a breakneck speed. Things are accumulating faster, and that's, that's what happens. It just accumulates faster and faster and faster. Even as diversified as we are today, we travel around a whole lot, and uh, people marry outside of their areas and their, and their groups quite often. It is becoming more and more of a problem, which is a witness that this is the way the world works. Language goes downhill. Genetics goes downhill. From the perfect downhill. You look at ancient languages. You look at uh, what's known as cuneiform, ancient, um, you know, the uh, the Ugartic languages, what were Babylonian and Akkadian. Those come from unbelievably complicated languages. So blasted complicated. Ancient the hieroglyphs, you know, was discovered in the mid or early early eighteen hundreds late 1700s, how to decipher them with the Rosetta Stone, but even with the Rosetta Stone and what you actually had, you know, the Greek and the Demotic and the hieroglyphs, even that took a bit of figuring out how hieroglyphs worked because hieroglyphs were so blasted complicated that only very, very few people could even write or read it. It was so complicated. So they developed simplified versions of it. Simplified versions of language. Language goes downhill. I mean, you read books from the early 1900s. You read them from the 1800s. These are, you read letters from Civil War soldiers writing home. A lot of them didn't really have great education, but you read that, you're like, man, they start getting a dictionary out because they're words we don't use anymore. They're understandings of words we don't use anymore. Language goes downhill. Genetics goes downhill. So, but another key lesson in these things of the cursed be, things that are mixing things up within the family, is that there is a hugely important lesson. It even comes from Genesis chapter 2. That man leaves his parents, woman leaves her parents, they get joined together, and as Yeshua put it there, Matthew 19, 6, you know, what God has put together, let no man separate. And that is a lesson of a union, the echad. That is a lesson that is hugely important that goes down from generation to generation to generation. So thus, the lesson is anything that is starting to go in and just break down those walls of the echad. That, that is something that you just cannot tolerate within generations. So then when you go on in this list of uh, the Deuteronomy 27 curses, it curses the, the one who assaults his neighbor in secret. Okay, that's Sixth Commandment, murder, hate. Uh, cursed is uh, the one who accepts a bribe to convict the innocent. 
The ninth commandment about bearing false witness, accepting a, a, a false witness, basically perjuring yourself or committing perjury. But also, sixth commandment as well, because you are um, especially acting and could be specifically acting against someone's health, life, whatever. And that's, well, that's where you get the instruction in the Torah that's saying, if you're testifying in a case and you testify falsely, what happens to you? You get the verdict that you are trying to slap onto the person you were perjuring yourself against. So if you're in a murder case and you are falsely accusing somebody of murder, guess what verdict you're going to get? You're going to be convicted as a murderer for perjuring yourself. If you're in a bribery case, you get convicted as a, a one who commits bribery, fraud, adultery. If you're doing those sorts of things, what you tried to inflict upon someone else will come back upon you. And lastly, it talks about in Deuteronomy 27, curses the one who doesn't confirm the covenant by doing them. Now, interestingly enough, as we were going through our list, that really goes back to the first commandment. Because your covenant, this deal, what is that a sign of? That you are in a relationship. Because, you know, you don't just go down the road just willingly out the window throwing contracts, signed contracts just out the window. Fill in your own name. I don't care who you are. Just throwing them out the window. No, we don't do that. We go into a contract with people we have some sort of relationship with. Maybe begrudging relationships with it, with uh, some of the contracts we get into, but there is at least some sort of relationship there. So with heaven, you are a part of this relationship in being involved with this, which is why that whole discussion in chapter 30 about this is to be something that is upon your heart and upon your lips coming out from within you. This isn't just something that's bolted onto your life, you kind of wear it like a Torah suit and then take it off and then put it back on again, take it off, put it off. This is a part of who you actually are. Not a costume, not a charade, not an acting job, or as they would call it in Greek times, ubulkrate or hypocrite. But no, you are, this is actually who you, who you are from the inside. So thus, that gets back to the first commandment. You know, I'm the Lord who took you out of Egypt, had no other gods before me. There is nobody else in this relationship. It's just the creator and yourself. That's why when you're seeing their beginning of chapter 29, where it's saying, it listing all the people that are there today that are basically entering into this covenant, this contract, this agreement with heaven. Between heaven and you, and heaven and you, and heaven and you, heaven and you. But, like what we were talking about earlier, is that if these things that are happening between heaven and you start boiling up to then uh, take out the whole rest of the community, as you know, Ben and I was saying with uh, Matthew 18, when that starts happening, and you see 
Paul addresses that. He actually addresses a situation similar to this cursed bee with uh, someone with their um, closely related person, even if just by marriage. And that Corinthian population was being very tolerant of the situation and patting themselves on the back for how tolerant they were. But Paul said, you've got to address this because this is even unusual for Corinth, which you know, if you read history books, Corinth was like the San Francisco of, of the uh, Roman Empire. So it was definitely not a um, Puritan place. But if this was even um, making people raise an eyebrow in Corinth, what kind of a witness is that? That's a terrible witness for what the kingdom of heaven is all about. So Paul's like, you got you to gotta deal with this. And the best thing that you could have for all the parties involved, including the one who's at the center of this, is to say, look, we cannot have you here. This, this behavior just is not a part of what, how the kingdom of heaven works. So you see, thankfully, we get the follow-up book, 2 Corinthians, as you see, yes, that was a healing situation, not only for the person that was told who was cut off, but also for the community to realize, okay, we have to have a standards. We have to actually pay attention to what, that the kingdom of heaven works different from Corinth the culture of Corinth or the culture of the Greek um, culture or the Roman culture in general. And then Second Corinthians, you see, he is, in a sense, sort of grafted back in to the community and the relationship healed. So definitely a great lesson. Yes, uh, yes, Ben and I, what... I'm a little bit rusty on the scripture, but it says that reconciliation is the Father's heart. He desires mercy instead yes. of judgment. So if there's any possible way to reconcile, you know, to basically turn a brother or sister back to the faith without you stumbling yourself, if, yes. if, 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 if you have the strength in the Lord, if you, God has given you the wisdom, the knowledge to do so, then do so. I mean, exhaust every avenue possible. Yes, and... That, um, and it's it's one of those lessons that that you that you see in the individual relationships or the the uh, the relationships between your body of believers and the person who needs the help. You say, well, you know, are we being uh, too strict or too permissive? You look, well, what is the pattern that is actually presented to us? What has the Lord actually done when you see? how Israel was treated when the long-suffering that happened throughout Israel's history up to the time of the exiles. But then you have the prophet Hosea, who was given a terrible mission, <laughs> a terrible lifelong mission to basically live out what the heart of heaven was in taking the wayward parts of Israel and buying back Israel, even considering what Israel had done to herself in the process. 
Yes. So, yeah, that's a great observation because we can see in the history of Israel that's revealed through the prophets and what Israel has done and what we read here in their passage today about the calling back from the nations. That we can see, we can take that and say, okay, what, how can we take that approach in how we work with, with individual people with that kind of a heart? If heaven's heart for Israel is willing to do that, even for how much infidelity, how much betrayal has happened in the process, to still purchase back Israel should be an example for us then to say, this behavior can't continue, but this is the heart of the congregation. This is the heart of we as individuals for you. Uh, yes, uh, Lorella. I had um, personal experience with a situation like this with a group of believers. Um, didn't stand up and say, we need to deal with this sin that is in your life, and it's, a, it's an ongoing sin. It was, well, we don't want to make her feel bad, and so did nothing. And it got worse, and the people, the, the community, became not as, as filled. When the situation was finally addressed, then the congregation was able to come back. But if you leave that kind of thing in there yeah. because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or you don't want to be politically incorrect, sometimes it doesn't take a toll just on that one person, but it takes a, a toll on the entire body. Yes, which is, which is why you um, can see from the various views that have been taken on this just one verse that we have here in Deuteronomy 29.29 that, um, that this is a situation that... If you have things that are within people, okay, the Lord will deal with them. When they start percolating it out and the community starts becoming aware of this and this witnesses then for other people in the community or with people outside the community watching it, and it's like, okay, for the sake of the person involved and the community, you just have to deal with it. So that... That is the incredible uh, challenge. So, oh, I'm sorry, Alex, go to ahead. Follow before up we on that. On. I think the the difficult thing is for us not to be judgmental about it. That's yes. what Yeshua said. I'm not here to judge you. That's hey, that's in the end. It's coming, but I'm not here to judge you now. And you know, that's we just can't be judgmental about people. We're all that person who's backsliding ready to backslide at a moment's notice which is which is why i'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the the key instructions that yeshua was talking about and um it gets lost in translation in the gospels but one of the things where he's talking about you know do not say to someone you fool because you're the guilty of gehenna because we we think oh fool uh you're 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 silly, this and that and the other. But when you read Proverbs, fool has a very specific meaning. You're basically someone who has um, gone wayward off from God. You're almost a lost cause. So to say that of somebody 
that you're a lost cause, meaning you are going to be cut off from Israel, is not a willy-nilly thing to do. And if you just willy-nilly say, well, God is going to condemn you, unless you get promoted to deity, um, that's not any sort of determination that we could ever make. So thus, just like with that thing of the false testimony, we would not ever want to testify falsely against someone to condemn somebody into something. Well then, since we can never really know what heaven's situation is with a person, how are we then to step in and say, well, you are, you are condemned? So we can deal with the things from the outside, but the things that are with the in, inside, you know, we could, a situation where we can get surprised and we would have condemned Paul and said, but he's a fool. He's just hopeless fool. He's headed right into the flames. But wow, we'd be surprised to see the outcome of that. Uh, yes, Ben and I. I, I wanted to read Hebrews yes. uh, 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Um, I, I have wrestled over the years about judging and I think that there's a lack of discernment for my own personal experience I'm testifying in the body of our beloved Yeshua is that we haven't been judging righteously by the blood of the lamb is that when we speak life it is to bring correction because we love them to set them free because the word of God doesn't return void but if we do not speak and basically we think that we're loving them we're actually condemning them you know, I mean, I'm speaking for the body of Christ. Now, people already in the world, they're already judged and condemned. You know what I'm speaking about for believers in the body is that we need to speak life to them, that, that yeah. if the Lord has shown you something, of course, prayer and fasting for that person individual, but if God opens that door of opportunity for you, then you should speak life to them. And some people might construe that as being judgmental, but it's the truth that liberates them. And so basically, we do that because we love them, it's not basically to condemn them, but it is to bring a holy conviction to set them free from the condition that they're in. I believe that to be true. Well, we, we see the great examples of that. We, uh, in a few Torah readings earlier, we saw the tie there with Ezekiel 18. And it's basically, you have to warn people, but don't be arrogant about it. Yes, exactly. Respect in your eye. Make sure you, that, yes, that you do not have that. I mean, make sure that your heart is right before yes. the Lord. You know, that Amen you are clean, that. that you are clean before the Lord. And then I believe that you can speak life in a, in a pure sense to your brother or sister, but just make sure that that, that speck is, you know, is, and that plank is removed. You know, I, yes. I, okay. Amen to that. Yeah, that's something that we have a clear testimony in the word that um, that's, why also you, you could see this idea that um, we should be concerned if we see this kind of uh, behavior that starts to spill out from someone into wider notice into the world. That for concern for the person, that we need to take action, but very wisely take action. So um, just that uh, roping around uh, back to 
the other Haftarah section that we were looking at in John chapter 12. Just some, some thoughts as we kind of bring this back around to where we see Moshe's third address to the second generation going into the land. To also take a look at this as Yeshua's really final address as it kind of goes on from chapter 12 and goes on through chapter 17 of his final address to his um, closest. In this case, um, this part we just read here in chapter 12 was a little bit wider beyond the 12, the 11 that you see in the 13 through 17 chapters of John. But in this particular passage, what you see are some themes just like what you saw in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. That one of the glorious parts of heaven, that the glory that heaven is bestowing is the service of the Mashiach. And the sending of the Mashiach, the sending of the Messiah, is a wonderful testimony of the weight of glory, which you know in Hebrew it's the kavod, which means just weight, the weight of heaven, putting weight on something, and that is upon the service of the Mashiach, the service of the Mashiach for those around and also for all that would trust in the Mashiach. And we see also the same things that we see in Deuteronomy 29.30. Choose life. And the interesting way that you see that uh, Yeshua puts that is, he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So interestingly, that part of choosing life is to, quote, hate your life in this world. But it's paralleled with what you would say is don't choose death that we saw from Deuteronomy. And Yeshua says, he who loves his life will lose it. So you are just greedy for the things of this life. You're going to lose your grip on them. Why? You'll die. You'll get sick. Someone may take it from you. You'll lose all of your cash. And on and on it goes. It'll break. You'll, it'll, flood will come. Fire will come. Burn it down. It'll be gone. So you spend your life just trying to get all this stuff. And it will just slip faster through your fingers as you try to grab for more of it. But if you hold things as just a blessing, and if it goes, it goes. But what are the things that are most important? It's like um, you probably, in this area, we all probably know people or even ourselves experienced the encounters with fire. And um, one of the bands that I play with around here, a guitar player, um, as guitar players do, he had a lot of guitars and they went back decades. Well, he lived up in Mark West Springs Road and you know where this story is going. That he woke up, he barely got out himself. He had a choice. He was, and he was just telling this story again here just this past week. And he's like, he had a choice. He was going out the door, and he's like, I turn left, there's all my guitars. I turn right, there's the car. I can get my, my father and, you know, my father, my mother, get them into the car, get the kids in the car, but I'm not going to get anything else. He chose them, but he left everything behind. 
And you could see in the rearview mirror, the fire just was hitting his house. And then he heard from a friend just a few minutes later, yeah, your house is gone. It's just up in flames. So he chose life, but there was nothing else that was left out of that. So he lost everything out of that. But, you know, guitars. Yeah, he's got guitars. He had, uh, through his business, people have given him guitars. So those things, yeah, they come, they go. But if you hold those things loosely, then you're just not devastated when things come along. And you just happen to lose everything. And he also had a, a stack of cash in a safe. And the same thing was like, well, do I go for that or do I go for the car? Well, safe burned up. There was, it's funny, he was praying. It was like, please, Lord, let me, there be something left when I get back. When he goes back to his house, what's left? The safe. What's in it? Nothing. The, the paper money burned up because it was just a pot fire. No fire safe is going to survive that. You know, 1,500 degrees for hours and hours and hours. They're good for half an hour, maybe. But um, everything was in it went up. He had heirlooms that went back generations. All Everything went up inside the safe. But the safe was there. <laughs> it was like a, an obelisk just sitting there on the flat part of his slab. Everything else was burned down. But that's just a recent perspective that we have of just what Yeshua is saying. Choose life. Choose death. We have to be sure that we know when we're actually standing on the proverbial highway of life and there's the proverbial truck bearing down on us, do we actually know we're in the road? Do we actually see the truck coming? Or are we just so oblivious with our own stuff that we don't even know where we are or what's coming, bearing down on top of us? And that we see in this particular passage that when Yeshua is talking about, ah, the people are seeking for a sign, they're seeking for a sign, and he's quoting from the prophet Yeshayahu on this, about, yeah, all they're going to get are parables. Why? Because, you know, otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and they would turn and I would heal them. And I was, every time we go across this passage, you think, oh, that's just really tight. I mean, it just seems like heaven is just turning the screws to people for no reason. But really what it's talking about is that those who want to know, who are open, who have that heart that's sensitive for heaven, whose mouth is willing to actually speak the words, whose ears are willing to actually hear the words of heaven, then they will get the message. And you see in the Gospels, when Yeshua would tell these parables, oh yeah, People got the message. They knew, as it mentioned specifically, they knew that he was speaking this parable about them. <laughs> but what is your reaction? Is it like uh, there and you see in Acts chapter 2 where, where after you know, the apostle Kepha gets up and gives his great account of Israel's history, and it's like, okay, well, you've done this to the Mashiach. What is the reaction? Well, do you want to stone them? Or do you want to just come to repentance and you know in, instead of um thousands going up there at the golden calf thousands said hey wash this old way of life away from me yes we want to actually turn around yes said ben and i 
What's the verse that says, uh, those who seek to preserve their lives will lose them, but those who lose their lives for my sake will find life? trying to remember the specific rendering of it because what in this particular passage in john it has a version of that but yeah i know the one it's uh one of the parallel gospels i have to actually look that up is that the matthew version of that yes yeah there's uh, parallel passages in matthew and luke but they're right on that same path there of choosing life choosing death may not be what the world thinks choosing life and choosing death is it may seem foolish you're throwing quote throwing your life away well in a sense what are you actually gaining one of the issues that we have in our county and here in california with all these fires is what anxiety people are just at their wits end or anxiety anytime there's a little puff of smoke people start panicking and you can understand why if you've lost your house if you've lost loved ones have gone up in smoke you know, if you've had lung damage from smoke inhalation, yeah, that would, that, would, that would really get to you. But if you hold your life loosely, then whatever comes along, and we see the testimony both within Scripture and from our testimony of even modern-day martyrs where they held their life loosely, but they were definitely... Um, found life big time yes there's a precious scripture um i believe it's the book of revelation where it says the lord himself says behold i hold the keys to death in the grave and that right there because we know that our messiah holds those keys we have no reason to fear them yes yeah but the, the one thing the messiah says uh, there is one who you should fear Yes, the one who can you know, take your body and your soul and toss them in. and Yes, the one who can write in it or write it out. <laughs> yes, so this, this time of year, there's lots of uh, reflection upon that. Uh, all right, well, that comes to the end of our study here today. Any last thoughts before we close out? Uh, yes, Larry. I'm glad you brought up that thing about where he said, um, lest they turn and I would heal them. Yes. And um, I always thought that sounded, I mean, I was sounded trying to make really apologies mean. for that, right? <laughs> but actually, it's a positive thing. He says, if they do turn, I'll, I'll heal them. No problem. Yes. Yeah, and that's, that's another great way to look at that, that you could see just like what uh, the Apostle Paul says, that you know, throw them out and let Satan deal with them. For what reason? Just so we go, ha, ha, ha. No for his salvation yes yes like the prodigal son that's another He's great example wishing of he could eat those pig scraps yes <laughs> yes uh, ben and i i think it was paul who said how he turned over was it uh, alexander minus like turned them over to satan yes you know yes that's, they that's, shipwrecked their yes faith. exactly and i think the hope is is that they would return and repent amen that's, that's that ministry of reconciliation that is talked about. That's what um, Messiah's main role was in the ministry of reconciliation. And because we, as followers of the Mashiach, that is our mission as well, the ministry of reconciliation. Because, hmm? That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, indeed. 
Yeah, very much indeed. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.